0: Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I'm going to try to manage this in the mic at the same time. And welcome to those of you who are online. It's so good to see you. I have some announcements. Um, next Sunday I will be teaching here, and the title of the class is "Is God Still Dead?" <laughs> it's a re- really vitally important question to ask. Um, And then um, in two weeks, I'll be giving the sermon both services across the way, and I hope you will come to that and to this as well. Um, Some few weeks ago, months ago, whenever it was, I kind of coined a word, uh, built on something that Dr. Jim Bankston said, is Jim here? I don't see him today. He must be teaching somewhere else. He's what? Okay. (laughs) This is uh, Promotion Sunday, right? Uh, Something something like that. Okay, all right. So that makes sense that he would be doing. Anyway, I coined a word. Um, You know, Dr. Bankston, after our most recent mass shooting, uh, when he was speaking here, uh, said that um, in our culture, guns have become not tools as they were intended to be, but they've become politicized weapons. So I, um, in my ongoing fight to fight fundamentalism, came up with a new word. It is, um, oh, Sorry. Uh, The word is um, fundamentalism, And I uh, asked Kelly Casey if she would come up with a meme. So the praying hands are holding the AK-47. You can get one of these t-shirts if you want it. Uh, Even if you don't want it, I think you should have one and wear it. (laughs) Um, I'm going to... I've got now two of them. I'll wear them today out. When I go out, we'll see how it goes. If I don't show up here next Sunday, (laughs) you'll know what happened, right? But thank you, Kelly. It's a wonderful job. And we're going to have a way when Holly comes back, her plane got delayed. She went to celebrate her father's 80th birthday in Maine. Her plane got delayed. She was going to be here today. But Holly will help us get this out on social media. And um, if people want them, then they can contact you. Thank you for doing this. I love T-shirts, and I love T-shirts that, you know, make statements and cause my wife not to want to be seen in public with me. So that's it. So I'm glad you're here today and um, I want to um, introduce the man who's going to be speaking today and I'm not sure exactly how to do that. How long have we known each other Roddy? Uh, Forty years. years. I consider um, Roddy Young and his partner Rob Landis who is sitting right back there in the blue coat. Uh, Two of the best friends that I've got. and I've known Rob for a long, long time and Roddy when they got together and as a matter of fact um, some several years ago now. How long? Ten years ago. Although you've been together much longer than that. You've been together 40 years. Ten uh, ten years ago, we went to Boston, and I performed their wedding, and that was a really fun time to do. It was a great, great thing to do. Um, I've watched Roddy over the years become an expert in what he's going to talk to us about today, and uh, I'm so glad that you are here to hear him and to um, offer him support during this time. Roddy, thank you very much. Come and speak to us.
1: I love you, I love you too. Good morning, everybody, and I am here to talk about something i 'm very passionate about, and that 's imago relationship therapy. And what I want to do is talk about how I got involved in this. as you just heard, Rob and I have been together for 40 years, but a number of years ago, uh, I'd like to say we hit a speed bump on the freeway of love, <laughs> which kind of knocked us for a loop and by hook or crook, whatever, I stumbled onto an Imago relationship therapist who was in uh, the Montrose area and worked with gay couples. And I thought, okay, we'll go do that. And we spent a number of months with him with individual sessions, which was wonderful, and then we finished it up with a weekend retreat that he was holding, and he was, uh, it had a number of other gay couples in it. And we learned several things through all that. Number one, we learned that we are not unique, that everybody has the same issues, and that we learned a way how to reconnect. And so it's become my passion. I eventually decided to go back to school and change my career and become a social worker. And then I got um, certified in Imago Relationship Therapy and have been doing that since then. And it's a... Wonderful lens for me to look through at not only couples but as people, you know, that we all carry our issues with us all the time. And so it's learning about being conscious and knowing how to, um, how to move through that. So, a little bit about Imago. It was developed by Harville Hendricks and his wife, Heli La- Helen LaKelly Hunt, and it's a systems theory of relationship therapy which I'll explain as we go along. And it combines and blends aspects of major psychotherapy models. And here is Harville and Helen. And I found them very interesting. They're internationally known and respected couples counselors. They're uh, educators, speakers, and they're New York Times bestsellers. Together they've written over ten books and with four million copies, sold, including their Getting the Love You Want. That's If any of you are looking for a book to read to learn about how to be in a relationship, this is the one to get. If you just want to learn about what it's like to be in relationship with other people, this is the one to get. Uh, he graduated from Union uh, Theology Seminary at Columbia University in New York. And has an MA and PhD in psychology and religion from the Divinity School of the Chicago, University of Chicago. And he's a former um, uh, professor at the uh, Southern Methodist University. And he has appeared on Oprah Winfrey's show 17 times. So she's very fond of him. She has appeared, she, she has degrees from Union Theology, Theological Seminary in New York and Southern Methodist University. And besides the book that she's written with uh, her husband, <coughs> excuse me, uh, she uh, has co-authored three books. One of them is called Faith and Feminism. And she looks at the question of why do so many women of faith have a strong aversion to feminism and why do so many feminists have an ardent mistrust of religion? She's written another book called And the Spirit Moved Them, The Lost Radical History of America's First Feminist, and Sister Wisdom, Faith, Fortitude, and Inspiration, a collection of short meditations on, women's, on, on women, including saints, social reformers, and contemporary theologians. And she was installed in the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1994 in New York for her leadership in the global women's movement. I didn't know there was a National <laughs> Women's Hall of Fame. Look it up, there's a lot of interesting uh, people in it. Um, Harville was teaching in 1975 at Southern Methodist University and he was teaching a family, a class on family and marriage therapy. And it was a Tuesday morning and he was going to be late to class because he was going to the courthouse to to finalize his divorce after 16 years. And he had hoped that when he went to the class that the guys, everybody would have just dispersed and wandered off because he wasn't there but they knew where he was, so they waited around. And while they were there, they started talking about their own relationships and what had worked and what hadn't. Three of them had been married and divorced, three had never had a serious relationship, and six were in troubled relationships. After class, one of the students asked Carvel, after it was over, why do couples have such a hard time staying together? And he said, I don't know, but I'm going to spend the rest of my career trying to figure this out. And in 1977, he and Helen met, who had also been in divorce, and got together and have been working on this issue through today. Hi. I like that. I want that to happen a lot. Uh, Anyway, I forgot. Bill told me a pun right before I got up here, and this seems to fit, and about the man who was uh, engaged to the woman with the wooden leg. He decided to break it off. <laughs> oh, <no>. oh. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. I think everything i said about You can't. You can't. So we're going to look at Imago Relationship Theory first. And what he was wanting to find out, he and and his wife were, why are two people drawn together in the first place? What causes the conflict in their relationship? And how do we turn that conflict into reconnecting, growth, and healing? So he developed, he and Helen came up with this idea that we have two types of relationships. We have unconscious relationships, and a conscious relationship. So the first thing we're going to look at is the unconscious relationship. And the stages of the unconscious relationship are romantic love, this first one. And this is John and Mary. John and Mary meet, and they just sparks kind of flew. They knew they belonged together. And she's a little bit on the bohemian side, you know, a bit of a free spirit, a free spirit and she 's um, dresses that way she 's fun, just off the wall, has a great laugh, and he 's just very attracted to her of course he 's very buttoned down, a little bit more reserved. Um, her home is eclectic, his apartment is very modern, very uh, reader i mean architectural digest, and they just have the best time together, and they decide that They they develop a passion and this attraction for one another. They just get together like this. They have wonderful times together. They're passionate in their relationship. They have lots of sex. They just can't get enough of each other. They have the illusion that this is the relationship that we're going to be in the rest of our lives. They're ecstatic about it, and they have hope for the future because they they found their perfect partner. Who's found their perfect partner? (laughs) <laughs> we all do it first. We all have our perfect partner at first. We all go through this romantic stage when we first meet someone. You know, we just, oh, how wonderful they are. And then what happens is it comes along a power struggle. All of a sudden, they've been together for a little while, and this usually happens around commitment. Once you've committed to that person, suddenly you think, oh, and uh, they say love is blind, and they, uh, the, we, the blinders fall off after we commit. We begin to see the things that used to draw us together can sometimes irritate us. And John tells Mary, he said, you know, do you have to be so loud when we go out? You know, do you have to dance on the tabletops? Can't you just reel it in a little bit? And she says, why don't you unbutton that shirt and lighten up everything that used to bring them together begins to kind of irritate them. So you have expectations that it's, the other will change and it will be better. We'll start doing things the way they're supposed to do. And they're disillusioned. They think, what have I gotten myself into? Why am I stuck with this? Why why was I ever there? A lot of frustration and anger and fear, and they're at an impasse. They're just stuck with how to move forward, whether to move forward, get out, whatever. And they have symbiosis and fusion. And symbiosis is, you should think what I think. And I can look at you and say, what's the matter? with? What what do you mean you don't like broccoli? What's the matter with you? you? Have you ever had it in a casserole? It's delicious in a casserole. What's the matter? You know, it's good for you. <laughs> He'll say the same thing. He said, you don't want spare ribs? Spare ribs are good. And so they start arguing, thinking, what's the matter with you? So uh, that's symbiosis, or they just fuse together and just kind of decide they like what they like, the they, they just kind of stick it out a little bit. So this is a typical power struggle, and it might go like this. He is quiet, she experiences this as withdrawal. She tries to get a response, and he experiences this as nagging. He walks away, and she experiences this as an attack. He fights back, and it all ends in tears and resentment. Anybody ever do that? (laughs) I mean, it's, it's what happens. So the outcomes of the power struggle Number one, you can divorce or break up. John and Mary can split, go away on their own and look for a new partner and find somebody. They can have a parallel relationship, and that's where you're going like railroad tracks. You go along, kind of everything's going good. You don't really want to argue too much. You don't get too close or too far apart. You just kind of go along there. You don't go into the deep end of the pool to discuss broccoli. And all that stuff that's so important, or you just accept it. Oh, you have a volatile relationship where it's a lot of go along and then smooth it out for a little while, and then get together and do some of that again. Or you just accept it—a resignation. Well, this is as good as it gets. I remember reading Dear Abby years ago, and if somebody would write in about their marital problems, and she said, "Well." You know, you can do that. Or maybe this is as good as it gets. <laughs> maybe you should just accept it, you know. And um, I question that advice now. But Anyway, so what we're going to look at now is what's going on with a relationship like that. What's the backstory? What do we each bring into our relationship? And we all have baggage that we carry around with us. Everybody here, except for... Sherry, I don't think she has any baggage, <laughs> but all of us do. We all have, have these issues going around with us all the time, and the first thing we're gonna look at is the imago, so we'll know what we're talking about here with imago relationship therapy. And imago is the Latin word for image. In imago relationship therapy, it refers to an unconscious, idealized concept a familiar love that we developed during our childhood which remains unchanged in our adult. The development of the imago is based on interactions with our parents and or other significant adults in our early years of our life. So this is, we're very young, zero and three, four, something like that. Due to our construct on what love is, we will develop specific behaviors or survival patterns either by expressing or inhibiting personality traits in order to obtain love and stay. So, I'll explain that a little bit more. But that's what the Imago is. At the moment of conception, we come into being with the potential to grow into fullness, with genetic predispositions towards developing in certain ways. Constantly soothed by its mother's heartbeat, the embryo lives a tranquil, floating, effortless existence with no awareness of boundaries or of self. We come into the world with the capacity to be fully alive, present with each breath, born connected, empathically attuned to others and aware of ourselves. So we come in this little bundle of joy. And then our parents take (laughs) take over. And so, <laughs> so this next part is going to be, this is going to relate to the psychological things that go on to us, the uh, psychological impulses of each of our developmental stages. So we're going to look at a number of developmental stages along the way to what we experienced because of how our parents responded to those impulses and how we coped when our impulses were not supported and how this impacts us. In our adult intimate relationships, so we're carrying this with us when we go into a relationship, and so we start off at the um, earliest stage. And here we are, little babies, and it's the attachment and security and trust. It's when it cries, and you know, we go into that. <laughs> so you know, is the mother there with us enough to take care of us? Is a father there? Is everybody there to respond to things? are they too much there, they too smothering, not enough, and the baby, a lot of this imprints on the baby. The other, as we grow up, as we're a little bit older, 18 months to 3 years, it's where we begin to see ourselves as different from our parents, but we still need them there. You know, if you've seen a, a toddler walk around, they're going to walk over here, and go, but they're going to check to see if their parents are looking for them, you know, if they've got an eye on them or not. or. If they go this way and the mother goes, don't, 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 and they get this feeling that it's not safe. You know, so you have to let them stretch out a little bit, but keep them safe at the same time. And that's our unmet needs. (coughs) Excuse me. And about the unmet needs, it was, just so you'll know, it was impossible for our parents or any caregivers to be there, meet all of our needs all the time. (coughs) Excuse me. There are no perfect parents, so... As hard, hard as people try to be, it just, it just happens. It's part of the human experience. So we're going to look at childhood wounds. And this is where you're getting out and about a little bit, and you're beginning to get your sense of identity and who you are. And you get to be a little bit um, competent where you're able to begin to do things. You're beginning to go out and play in the yard and develop a few little friends, ride your bike, color, do some things like that. And it's what kind of recognition you get at that time. Oh, that's a beautiful picture you drew, or you got out of the lines this time. Try to stay more in the lines and you'll be doing a better job. You know, it's what, what we pick up at home and, and, the, and the different things that, that we uh, experience as children. And this includes all types of abuse, neglect, emotional, spiritual, and sexual abuse. So it can be, if you're in an abusive home, this will have a big effect on you also. <coughs> Excuse me, I don't know why this is coming. I'm following you. Bill had a little particularly in his throat the other day. So what we're looking at is the adapted self and our socialization, and parents and other agents of socialization shape us to be socially acceptable. This leads to our energy being blocked in some functioning areas, which leads to the loss of full functioning capacity in those areas. The result of the two journeys, our psychological and our uh, socialization, the result of these two journeys is we lose our connection with our original wholeness and our lives are limited by adaptations. We have to adapt to the society we're born into. We have to adapt to our parents. We have to adapt to our aunts and uncles. Everybody's bringing this stuff into it. They're approving or disapproving of what we're doing. And all that gets stored in the back of our minds, back here. So during these stages, we develop our sensing, all of our senses are there. We we're out and talking, carrying on, doing what we do, and we have we're able to have senses about what people are saying and feeling. You know, mother may be saying, Yes, you're a very good boy, but that doesn't work. <laughs> or of course I love you, but get in that room. <laughs> Or, you know, just the opposite of what you really need or what you're thinking about. So you've got that. Your acting comes on. You're running around doing things, or you're getting approval or not approval for things you're doing. Your thinking comes on board. Oh, Mary, you're not as bright as your brother. You know that. You know, his thing is math. Why don't you try something a little more? Thank you, Bill. much better. I appreciate that. So, the thinking, the acting, and our feeling comes along. You know, our feelings, how we're responding to things, the different things we feel when people say things to us. Do we, um, why can't you do things as good as your brother? Which is kind of, uh, your brother's good. Why don't you try that? Why can't you get to do that? But I don't want to do that. I want to play the piano. I want to do this, something like that. And so it, it just depends on these varying messages that we get. And there are two types of socialization mes- messages that we get. And here they are from our parents, our uh, extended family, our teachers, um, neighbors, all the different people we relate with. It's okay to be. It's okay just to be on this earth and be who you are. It's okay to be you with your likes and your dislikes and the things you you care for. It's okay for you to think. If you want to think something or read something or or drawn to something, it's okay. It's okay for you to feel the way you feel. It's okay for you to want to experience things through touch, play around and do things like that. To experience your body, to experience yourself running, to experience to move. Just all the things that kids want to do. Don't run in the house. Don't run so much out in the backyard. You're going to run, and you're going to dirty that dress, and we can't do that. We don't have time to do that. Girls shouldn't be running. And I know a lot of this is stereotypical, but it's easier to understand. And why aren't you out there playing football with boys? You know, so you're getting all these messages. And that goes into the repression part of it. Don't be, don't be you, don't think, don't feel, don't touch, don't experience your body, don't move. So we all get these messages back and forth when we were kids. Here's an example of some of it. The people in our lives who give us approval or disapproval. And here we are with a lot of disapproval. I love this one with Dr. Phil. You're fat. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And lots of fingers shaking. There's the church, the school, our uh, kids who torture us and beat us up or give us a lot of stuff. The mean girls in school. And are you one of the good girls or one of the bad girls? Are you athletic or not? All those things. Here's some more of these up here, of us trying to fit in and be socialized. And where do we fit in all this? And I look at the girls up there in the corner putting on their makeup. And as I look at them, I wonder, who's encouraging them to do this? Do they really want, does one of them really want to do it, or just trying to fit in? And what kind of messages have they heard that they need to start looking pretty? You know, painting it up means looking pretty. The girl in the middle with her parents, and she's obviously an athlete, and there's two ways of looking at this for me. The parents are very proud of her for doing this, and are they proud of her, As equally proud of her doing other things that she does? So uh, there's always mixed message, and my favorite is the little girl down there being dressed up for a beauty pageant by her mother. (laughs) Who's wanting to do this, the little girl or the mother? What kind of message is she getting at that age? If she wanted to play soccer, would her mother be equally as enthusiastic about it? So we come up with the self in our defenses. And this is what happens through all this. And we develop a presentational self. That's what I'm doing right now, (laughs) my presentational self. We all have one that we walk around the world in and present ourselves with, and this, this is who I am, I'm Roddy Young, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. We also have the social thing, and it's how we like to present ourselves socially, and that's a different kind of level that we do, how we present, and how do we shape ourselves to fit in with the different people that we're with. The other stuff is our hidden stuff. It's the stuff that these are all conscious, the first part. We're aware of what's going on here right now in the presentational, the social, and the hidden. And the hidden is the stuff that I'm very well aware of, but I don't want you to know about it. You know, it can be um, picking your nose. It can be, you know, you don't want to walk around telling everybody, boy, I got a good one out today. You know, we don't do that stuff. And there's just things that we do, we keep hitting it, maybe the ways we eat. Um, I used to eat a Whataburger all the time. I'm not real shy about telling this because I have told people this, but I would always buy one, take it home, put it in the microwave for one minute. I would cut it into fourths, and I would eat bread, vegetables, dun, dun, dun and just do that. I don't know why I did that. (laughs) I wouldn't do it at somebody's house if they were serving hamburgers, but I don't eat those anymore, so I don't have to think about that. But that's, you know, some things that we might have hidden that we don't want people to know about, uh, eating pints of ice cream every day that we don't really want people to know that we do. Um, The other part are hidden behaviors that we're not aware of. And the lost are prohibited um, and they represent parts of ourselves that are not only hidden from others but are hidden from ourselves. And that just may be some kind of shame or fear or lack that we have but don't feel good enough, you know, but it's all just back there hidden. It's stuff that that we don't want people to know and I don't want to know about it. The other is the, the denied. And mine would be you know what? She is such a gossip. I heard her the other day saying something terrible about Bill, and you know she's just telling everybody. And I heard her tell so and so, and he just laughed it up. You know, I just can't stand a gossip. I'm glad I'm not a gossip. <laughs> so that's pretty much how it works. <laughs> so it's there. Others see it. We don't. And we also have the uh, our positive traits that some of us might not be aware of, but others see in us. And so it's we've got it hidden. We may have talents that we've shut back over the years because we we didn't want to do it. We were, we were too embarrassed to do it, and we have just shut it back. As I've gotten older, I've gotten more aware that I would have really enjoyed performing on the stage. But in high school and all through my growing up, I, I was too shy, too scared, wouldn't even think about it, wouldn't even mention it to anybody that I wanted to do that. And I would have loved to have been a singer. Of course, I can't sing. But I, I, <laughs> but I never really tried or went for it because I was shy about it. You know? So I've gotten aware of some of those things, but we still have them. So, this is what happens when we have our lost, denied, and disowned selves. We shut ourselves down in a lot of areas that we're not aware of, and and what we do is we're not fully alive and we don't express ourselves. And so, that's um, what happens with our our socialization and uh, psychological journeys. And this is how we view the world. We view it through a different lens. So, over the period of time, we've just had different lenses stuck in there. So, we have this distorted view of ourselves and the world. So, with our response to unmet needs and repressive socialization, we have what we call a character defense. And that's fight, flight, freeze, or submit. So, when you get it, it's a basic thing we go to whenever something is troubling us or when we get angry, or something like that, we pull back or we stand up and fight, or we freeze or just submit to it. So that's basically how we do respond to these things and you'll, it'll be clearer in a minute. So here comes John into their relationship with all of his stuff, his baggage his positive and negative traits that he's developed over the years. And when they meet they fall in love. And why do they fall in love? It's because of this. They come together and they have similar traits in common. And the thing that really draws them together is the negative traits which i thought was fascinating to learn the negative traits have a stronger pull because they have the stronger feeling from us as childhood the negative traits when your parents say oh you did a good job with that that's not near as much as don't ever do that again you know they stay in there and they're in the back of our minds so that's what's drawing them together and if John needs, if he picks somebody, and so does Mary, if he, she doesn't have some of the things that he needs, he can provoke it, and he can walk up to her and say, you're always mad, aren't you? You always get mad. You always take the disagreement. You always disagree with me, everything I do. You always get mad, and you say, damn it, I don't get mad. But see, <laughs> you do get mad every time. Or you can just project it on there. I can just see it on you. I can look in your face and just think, that's what he's or she's thinking about, and just project it on there. So that's what draws those two together. And this, to me, is one of the most important things to learn out of this is that how our brain reacts to all this. We have our reptilian brain down here in the back. It's at the base of our brain. And that is where our breathing and all the automatic things happen. But it's also where we store most of the stuff from our childhood issues. Then we've got the limbic system, which is a little bit higher. And that's where our emotions are. And so we can be a little bit more aware of that. The neocortex is where we have the ability to think. So it's real important to realize that because, say I'm walking into my house one day, I unlock it and the lights are off and I hear something in there and the first thing I go is like this. Oh God, something's in there. And I get afraid and, I, and and somebody's in there, I'm gonna get killed, I don't know what to do. And it just so automatically happens. And then somehow I can kick it up into my brain here and say, turn on the light. And I turn on the light and the cat has knocked a lamp off of the table. But my first thing is just my automatic re- uh, response. And that's what happens to us in our relationships, when we get angry with one another, we'll go to that first place that it might be. So I, I try to be aware of this in my life. It helps. So the two character types are going to be a minimizer, and that's someone who, when there's a fight, they're going to pull back. They're going to just pull back. They're not going to get into it. And what happens with them? They tend to pull away, so they hide. They just go away. And the other character type is the maximizer. They're the ones who cause all the trouble. And as you can see, they don't hold it back much at all. <laughs> really don't. So when two people get to arguing like John and Mary, whoever is the minimizer, usually what happens is turtles withdraw, but you get them in an argument, and they get to, you know, he's going at her, and she just pulls, 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 pulls back, and he just keeps going, and finally she snaps. You know, so you can only push them so far before they snap back, too. But these are the two ways people are going to react in a relationship. Is any of this familiar with anybody in here? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so what are we going to do? Why don't we just pick someone who gives us everything we didn't get in childhood? It doesn't work that way. You would be bored spitless if you found somebody just like you. It's not fun. You're not attractive to them, you know? Anybody ever get fixed up with somebody on a date and they say, this one's going to be perfect for you. Y'all just really belong together. And you get together with them and the veneer is just wonderful. And you think, okay. (laughs) And you don't really want to do it. And everything on the outside looks perfect. And then you get hooked up with somebody that you really pain your friends say why are you doing that you know they, you left john and you didn't do that but it's what it what draws them and uh again i don't know if any of you ever known uh people who do break up and they get back with the same type of person time you the uh yeah everybody's shaking their head. you get back with the same person because that's what you're really attracted to So, now we're going to talk about the other side of this. We know what's going on with all this stuff and how, why it's working out. So, what are we going to do? How does a couple work through this stuff? And so, if all of this other stuff is become, is, takes place in our unconscious, we need to flip it over into a conscious relationship. So, we need to cooperate with the intention of our unconscious by creating a conscious, committed relationship in which the couple intentionally meets each other's unmet childhood needs. So you have to be aware of what's going on. Know what your baggage is that you're bringing in. And as Imago therapist, we use a three-stage structured process called the Imago Dialogue. And as a therapy with the Imago Dialogue, it couples learn specific skills and effective tools to learn how to not communicate, to talk. <laughs> Bill has used this before and I've switched it from communicate because he was talking about when you walk in and ask somebody how you doing fine you know that communicate but we learn how to talk and uh, it moves from reactivity to intentionality if you're able to sit down and talk to each other with intention and not being reactive you can talk and it creates safety and intimacy, and it renews the love, the passion, and potential of the relationship. The purpose is to help couples move from symbiotic fusion and disconnection to differentiation, to differentiation and connection. The symbiotic thinking: you know what I know, you know what I need, you like what I like, you should like what you like, you should like broccoli. <laughs> into you don't like broccoli? Tell me about it. <laughs> when did you first eat it? When did you decide you didn't like it? <laughs> you know, So, so you, you, you're able to understand each other as different, person, different people. It creates safety between the couples so that the unarticulated or unspoken parts of their cells can emerge and become integrated, so they begin to feel comfortable sharing more with each other because they're not going to get reactivity. And the process enables couples to see their partner rather than our projections onto our partner, thereby deepening and understanding, deepening understanding and empathy. So the three steps to the Imago dialogue, which I think is the beauty of this, is the Imago dialogue and it's mirror, validate, and empathy. This was used by Harville and Helen Hendricks to uh, base the um, uh, dialogue on, was uh, Martin Buber's idea of the I, it, I, thou, and I, it. And she said there's two ways we can look at another person. We can just look them as, a, as an it. Or we can look at them as a person, and when we get closer and we begin to talk, when we share an experience and talk closely, and we're talking and listening, there's a sacred space between us. It's a relationship. So we're having an I-thou relationship. So I'm connecting with you as a person, not just as somebody I'm wrestling in line with to get in front of them in Kroger, you know? And so what we want to do is learn how to listen respectively. And if you notice that the first slide, it said the space in between and the space in between is the space between John and Mary they need to acknowledge that each one of them is different and yet they have to build on the relationship and keep it together to make it work so not only do we need to look at what um, what I need in the relationship I need to look at what my partner needs in the relationship and the main thing is what can we do to build this relationship at all times? Be conscious of what we want in our relationship and, and be kind. And so what we do in dialogue, we use that to do, to do these things, but I want to tell you a little bit more about dialogue. What we do is we put two chairs up. When I, and if I'm in therapy and I tell people to do this at home too, get two chairs and sit across from one another. And don't sit like this, don't do like that, don't cross your legs. <laughs> you have to be open a little bit. And both of you learn to be open. And you need to mirror what the, the, the affect of the other person. So if you're sitting there talking, you say, I really have something I want to share with you. You, say, you don't say, what do you want to share? You want to say, I hear you really have something you want to share with me. So you want to mirror their affect. And if somebody is real upset, I'm really upset today. You say, I hear you're really upset. So you mirror that and you listen to what they have to say. So um, the two couples sit together and I encourage one to speak and the other has to listen and they have to do it in small bites because it's too hard to listen if you're busy thinking about you're, what you're going to say back, too. So you have to repeat back what they say. And that's the hard part. So if they say, you know, you came home from work the other day and I had planned a special meal for you and you came in late and you didn't even speak to me. You just went upstairs. And when you did that, I felt hurt and angry. And the story I told myself was I don't matter to you. So John's job is to come back and say, I hear you say, that when I came home from work the other day, and you had done that special meal, and I just walked up and ignored you, you felt hurt and angry. And the story you told yourself was that you don't matter. So I can listen to my partner. I don't have to agree with anything they say. You know, I could just, I hear that, you know, and it's not for me to say, well, I couldn't help but come along to you, know, had traffic and all this kind of stuff. But you want to listen to your partner's feelings first, talk about that and what happened. And you can say, it makes sense that you would feel that way. So it's just a way that we learn to talk to one another, which helps you bond and connect. And you're working on that relationship. It's the main thing is the relationship. And know how we want to react. John might want to naturally react by saying, well, I was running late. But if he is aware of his brain and how it works, and he's sitting there and he's trying to go through his brain and realize it's a cat behind the door, that realize that something she's saying is very important to her and I need to listen to her. She's important to me. So that's how the dialogue works. And we use this same thing through all the next steps that we do in our relationship. So, number one, we want to use the dialogue process and really learn it. And Rob and I went through this stuff years ago. And the other day, I had come home from work, and I said, you yeah, know, we haven't done the official dialogue in years. We just, we just haven't. But I said, Rob, do you remember the steps to the dialogue? And he said, I hear you say, Rob, did you remember the steps? <laughs> and I said, I guess you do. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we can speak enough Spanish to get by when we need it. So that works for us very well. So we use this with the six steps to a conscious relationship. And so what we want people to do when they decide to do this kind of work, or work with a therapist, or do it at home, is number one, you've got to recommit to your relationship. You've got to let all that other stuff go away and start from today. From today, we start this relationship. We're not going to go back and dig up stuff from the past. And, well, you remember when you did this and you did that and you did that and you did that and I had to put up with all that crap. Why can't you put up with that? We don't do any of that. So we go in and uh, commit to that day. So from this day, I commit to the relationship. And if you're in a really bad place and you're having a lot of trouble, I, mean, I don't know whether I want to be in this relationship at all anymore. I ask him, can you commit... For six months, just for six months, will you give it a try? And um, so, just commit for whatever it takes to get it going. So you commit to the relationship, to the use of the dialogue, and you commit to identifying and closing exits and removing ambivalent. And any of you exit your relationship by, by. Watching television by not being present by being busy By not paying enough attention by not taking the time to be with your partner with your spouse or with a friend who wants time with you You know we we can exit I'm too busy to do this stuff um, and so the close close exits and you you uh, uh remove ambivalence and that's what well it doesn't really matter you have to commit to it and say this is important my relationship is the most important thing to me right now the other things that we want them to do is to revision their relationship and couples need to most of us stumble into a relationship and we get there and do it but how how do you want your relationship to be what do we as a couple do how do do we uh, spend time together regularly do we sit down and listen on a regular basis. Do we like to take vacations together? Where do we like to go? We talk about what you want. What is our goal? Do we want to buy a house together? Do we want to have puppies? Do we not? And just talk about your relationship and what each one of you needs and listen back and forth and, and have a, a, a vision for what you want. And that comes with two things. When I'm working with a couple and they create their vision, it, it uh, becomes the uh, goal of their couple, of their coupleship, but it also maps out what their therapy is. I know where they're trying to go. Because I don't tell people what to do, ever. They tell us what, what to do. You know, I don't say, but well, you've got to do that, and so you've got to do that, you've got to do that. Because they're not going to do it. Nobody's going to do it. They need to do it themselves. So the next one is, we're going to, we've already done revisioning, Uh, to remove negativity from a relationship and that's absolutely imperative we don't you get to get rid of all of it no shaming no blaming no rolling of the eyes you know none of that kind of stuff and and tone of voice again you know all these things you you've you've got to pull all that stuff out of there and be aware of it no shaming blaming accusing criticizing just pull that out of there And what I have them do is I take them to a zero negativity pledge. I want them to actually do that when I work with them and I want them to do it via dialogue so they each talk back and forth about it and they have it written down. And they have a calendar. And any time anybody does negative things, you put a little box on there, a little check there. But then you get together right away and say, I said this, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. And you, you make it up, you smooth it back out. But you keep track of it because the more you're aware of it, the easier it is to let it go. The next is re-imaging. And that's one of the most important parts is to notice that your partner is a separate person from you. They don't exactly like the same things all the time. They're an individual other. They don't have to feel the same way I do about certain things, you know you can be democrats and republicans living together (laughs) if you just agree you're going to do it and don't go in that direction um it helped i had a a a talk with my brother not oh quite a while back actually and we got onto this uh, political thing and i called him up the next day and i said i love you (laughs) he said i love you too and i said i've decided we don't ever have to talk about politics again. And he said, that's good. <laughs> that's good. And I had a grandmother who was uh, a Nation as far as smoking and drinking, but she told my grandfather that if he voted for FDR, she was going to divorce him. So, you know, she, just, she had some strong stuff. I don't know who he voted for. But anyway, you, you have to realize that, that, that you're living with another person and that you have different likes and different tastes, but you're in the relationship to love one another. And if you have everything in common, it gets boring. The next is how to restructure a frustration. We all get mad. We all get angry. We all have disagreements. I may hold a grudge. I may want something that I'm not speaking up about. And what? You need to discover, and they will discover over time, that a frustration is a wish or a want and a need in disguise. And so they learn how to convert their frustrations into wishes and then into a concrete thing that they want. And then they're able to talk about it and work through it with the dialogue. So they're able to work through these things, and each one learns to stretch, and that's a hard thing to do. And I'm going to go back to broccoli. I made a broccoli casserole today. (laughs) I think you might want to try it. Well, I'll try it. You know, you stretch into that a little bit. And you suddenly taste it, and it could be, I still hate it. Or, yeah, that's not bad. (laughs) I can do that. So you learn how to stretch to meet each other's needs. And it helps you. Maybe regain some of the stuff you lost in childhood, some of the things that you automatically dislike, you're able to change about yourself, restructuring uh, frustrations. And finally, re-romanticizing your relationship. It's so easy to let that go away and just, you've been together for a long time and you just forget about it. I'm going to tell you something that Rob did for me the other day that I was touched by. And it's as simple as this: We went to pennies and I was going to get some new underwear. <laughs> and they didn't have what I wanted. Uh, oh well, that's okay. I went to. Two days later, after coming home from work, there was a package there for me, and I opened it up, and it was new underwear. <laughs> and I thought, what a kind and thoughtful thing to do, you know. And I didn't just think, oh, thanks, thanks you for putting there, but I thought. He thought of me to do that, you know, um, during the um, we also have dates on a semi-regular basis where we like to get up and uh, get dressed and go to a symphony or something like that. We're going to the alley, uh, not this, uh, next week to a show and we'll dress up, we'll go out to eat. We'll just spend time together, which we have to do, have to be romantic. And, and date each other again, and be kind and loving. Um, I never leave the house without saying goodbye, give him a hug. I never come home that I don't come by and give him a hug. <laughs> you know, I know in the morning and during the day he doesn 't like me to mess up his hair, but at night I can mess it up <laughs> so, so i don't I don't do it just when I want to. I keep him in mind <laughs> I'm talking a bit much, aren't I? <laughs> Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But it's, you know, it's true. And then, let's see, where are we going here? This is another thing I do. This is inner children. These are pictures of Rob and me when we're very young, and I advise every couple, everybody, to keep a picture of themselves out when they're young so that we know who we live with underneath this big boy stuff. That occasionally we're little boys in big boys' bodies and we react and we get hurt. And just to know that we all have childhood issues. And I can always soften my stance on that when I, when I become aware of that. So get yourself a picture of yourself, even. Get it out and look at it. And know who you're walking around with inside of you. And this is the end of it. If this is what Helen and um, uh, Harville talked about, they. Um, by the way they nearly divorced in their relationship and they were about ready to do it and they thought we've got to give this thing a shot again and they really did it and they worked it out they said if helen and i were to take all the insights we've gained over the past 30 years it's 40 now and reduce them to their essence we would summarize them in the following sentence accept the reality that your partner is not you Be an advocate for your partner's separate reality and potential. Make your relationship a sacred space by removing all negativity. Always honor your partner's boundaries and practice the Imago Dialogue until it becomes second nature and you can interact spontaneously again. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.